Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson and in this episode, I am incredibly happy to bring you an interview with Dr. Henrietta Bowden-Jones. And um, Henrietta is a medical doctor, a neuroscience researcher and a consultant psychiatrist uh, in addictions. But um, that's just the tip of the iceberg, really, in terms of her accomplishments and achievements. But the reason that um, she's on and the reason that she talks and what she talks about in today's episode is all about problem gambling and pathological gambling. In terms of our health, fitness and lifestyle, it's one of those things that if it gets wrong, it makes us unwell. So it's really about when people get into difficulties more than anything else. But I think one of the reasons I particularly wanted to cover this is just because I have become increasingly aware of the near blanket coverage and advertising for betting and promoting gambling that goes on. It has become completely normalized. Yet I've also been very aware in the background, partly due to my involvement with addictions in the past, that gambling is something that some people can get into terrible trouble with. So, um... Henrietta, there couldn't be a better person to speak to than Henrietta. Uh, she's really made this her subject over the past, um, oh, well, a number of years now. Um, she was the founder and director of the, and is the director of the National Problem Gambling Clinic um, at the NHS clinic based in London. She has been involved in all sorts of national and international measures discussing the difficulties of gambling and the research. And she's very much an advocate. She um, lectures, she teaches, she speaks on the media, and um, she is wonderfully uh, articulate and passionate about this problem of gambling and how it relates to us all in our lives. So we delve into all sorts of areas around this. We go into how common pathological gambling is, the number of people that could affect, the number of people at risk, and it's as high as 2 million. You, there are certainly people listening who may have been affected or could be affected in the future or will have family members, friends who are affected. So we also make sure that we talk a little bit about how you can go about helping those people, what you might recognize and some of the difficulties around that as well. We talk a little bit about the whole idea of behavioral modification and we talk a little bit about the impact of advertising as well. So um, tremendous amount here. If you're certainly if you're a healthcare professional, I think this is an essential topic to get into and be aware of. But I think there's an awful lot here for everybody because it's a problem that's impacting on us all um, in terms of advertising and the vulnerability of our children and our young people as well. Anyway, so that's all about that. So we'll get on with that in just a moment. If you are just new to the podcast, welcome. It's great to have you along. I hope you get lots out of this episode and please do take a look back at the archive. We've had lots of really wise people talking about all sorts of topics related to health, fitness, nutrition, and other areas. Um, and please do delve back uh, to take advantage of their um, knowledge um, and understanding around evidence base, particularly. So we do our best to avoid too much, um, to avoid any flannel where we can. Um, uh, if you're a long-time listener, uh, it is, of course, fantastic to have you along. I hope you get plenty out of this episode. If you haven't already, please do consider, I would say, well, you know, we can go to iTunes and leave a review. You could sign up for the email list. But actually, what I perhaps would emphasize today is just to say, actually, tell one other person. 
if you can. That would be doing me an enormous favor. I'd be incredibly grateful. But have a conversation about something rather than actually doing it on social media, rather than clicking a button. Talk to somebody about something related to your health. And if you can relate it to something that's happened on Blocology, that would be fabulous. So the only one thing I wanted to mention as a podcast, there are a lot of sirens at various times, particularly towards the end. Henrietta is based down in London, so that's almost an inevitability. Um, But I certainly don't think that that um, intrudes. But it's one of those things that you hear them in the background of a podcast and you start to wonder if it's you or you look around. Now, it is very much on the recording this time. Uh, The first thing I did was get Henrietta to tell us a little bit about how she first got into this work in problem gambling and her work around behavioural addictions. It was uh, an unexpected um, course of events, as these things often are. Um, I was uh, already uh, trained up in terms of psychiatry, in terms of sort of membership exams. Uh, and I was doing um, an MD in neuroscience and, uh, at Imperial College, particularly looking at decision making and addictions. And... Uh, and the thing that really interested me was a bit of the brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And I was interested in looking at whether people who had an impaired functioning in that area uh, were less likely to do well following detoxification and, uh, and treatment um, in, uh, uh, in hospital. And uh, by chance, as it turned out, uh, during uh, the battery of tests that were about six or eight hours long. They were very, very lengthy. Um, uh, these particular ways of, of looking at the functioning uh, of this area of the brain. Um, some of my subjects were doing extremely badly on tests that should have been quite easy. The equivalent of there are nine black, there are nine blue squares and one red square. You know, how likely is it that your gold square will be covered up by a blue or a red square? You know, most people would go, well, if there are nine blue ones, it's very likely to be under a blue one. But these people would go, well, it's highly likely to be under the red one. And and this would be very difficult to understand in a kind of global uh, cognitive uh, uh, realm of, of each each one of their minds. So so eventually, I spoke to one of the sub, one of these subjects. And I said, "Look, why is it that you said under the red? Because it's it's nine to one that it's blue." And he said, "Henrietta, what you don't understand is that myself and a few others on this ward, well, we are problem gamblers." And I remember saying, "What's that?" You know, and I had already trained in addictions on the Charing Cross rotation in London. You know, it was a good addictions rotation, but problem gambling just wasn't on the map. It wasn't on the map on our training, um, nor indeed in terms of any screening in a clinical environment. So I became fascinated and I started reading up um, about the illness, mainly using Australian, Canadian um information american information because they were so much more advanced since here there was literally nothing um and uh, and eventually g- gained enough knowledge to uh, be able to discuss the issue with the royal college of psychiatrists 
Right, amazing. Uh, and you've you've done some incredible work, and I, 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 it's really important that I mention all the kind of the, the and really leading this field and putting problem gambling on the map in terms of as a medical problem, uh, setting up the National Problem Gambling Clinic, and oh, I mean that's just tip of the iceberg, really, with the things you've been involved in. Is that just because when you really started looking into, it, you discovered this just this wasn't getting addressed at all? Well, I, I think in part it's to do with that. And in part, I think it's just to do with my personality. And I think some of my character traits are shared by so many of our, of our colleagues. So what happened was that suddenly there I was with something that was very interesting, no need to do any exams about it. It was just for me to learn. And I remember, I think I filled in about 400 index cards, which, you know, to the merriment of my family, um, you know, I, the idea of just, you know, scribbling madly away. But I was almost using a Victorian classification system to make sure that I knew every bit of what there was to know from biological to uh, to, to clinical to uh, prognostic in order to to be able to actually eventually um, say that I knew this illness. I was lucky that uh, it's uh, it, it was in those years, we're now talking about, you know, almost 15 years ago, um, such a, a small field research-wise, globally even, there wasn't so much, you know, if you, want, if you decided to do this on schizophrenia today, you'd be at it for many years. Whereas I think it took me about six months. And it was actually, interestingly, politically, a time when this, uh, the UK government had uh, uh, suggested they might be opening more casinos and one big super casino. And the Royal College of Psychiatrists then asked me to be their spokesperson on this because they needed to answer media questions about whether more casinos would mean more people gambling and potentially uncovering more pathology. And so it was a bit like being thrown in at the deep end because luckily I had done my index cards, but suddenly instead of one call a week, which is what I'd agreed to, there were four or five calls of major media, you know, newspapers, TV channels ringing me, asking me for my opinion. And of course, you know, <laughs> uh, none of us knew very much. And I also, compared to my international colleagues, didn't know very much, but I, I took it on. And, and I think it led me very quickly to realize that you know we needed a clinic we needed an nhs clinic yeah absolutely so for uh, some of these things i want to dig into but let just let's for those listeners who've not thought of this before or i mean i guess most people's exposure to this is the adverts which tell you about that i mean we can come back to this as well the kind of the the, the absolute saturation coverage there is now for advertising for gambling and betting opportunities particularly online how common a problem is it, um, would you say? So just to sort of, sort of ballpark figures to give people an idea about how likely this is to pop up. The good news is uh, that um, as an illness, uh, the prevalence surveys and the last one that was done properly was in 2010. So bear in mind that a lot has changed since then. But around 2010, the prevalence surveys suggested that just under 1% of the population was pathologically gambling and that uh, and that 2 million people 
were at risk. So we're talking about around, you know, 400,000 people in the country are showing significant symptoms, which I can go into in a minute. Mm. And 2 million people are scoring enough in terms of loss of control or harm from gambling financially or in terms of their relationships to be deemed to be at risk to be deemed to be potentially future problem gamblers unless measures are taken. So um, that that's where it was in 2010. In more recent years, I've been campaigning for a decade to return to the same methodology because we've had changes in terms of deregulating some of the um, gambling uh, exposure that this country has been subjected to, um, and we haven't had a thorough uh, prevalence survey as we had in 97 in 2000 and 2010. So what we need is to use the same methods, compare apple with apples and make sure that we haven't doubled our rates. Um, this is what I'm campaigning for at the moment very, very strongly. Yeah, I mean, and I could see why, because culturally it feels like there's been a big shift in the 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 the, the um this the visibility of gambling options and online gambling behavior in the past seven eight years and particularly if you think about online gambling whether it's poker or you know not just betting on football or other things actually that it's now just everywhere uh absolutely uh the uh exposure not just of children and young people which is one of the issues that really um, uh, worries me, but of the population at large has multiplied uh, phenomenally. And so, by the way, has the income of the industry, of the gambling industry. So we know people are gambling more. What we also know is that, um, uh, well, we don't, we don't know about the pre prevalence rates, but we do know that people are online a lot more. When I opened the clinic in 2008, the majority of my patients uh, were gambling on land-based opportunities like casinos and mm. bookmaking. Um, some of them had been gambling for 20 or 30 years, um, whereas now everything is very fast. The gambling is fast. The availability is fast via the Internet at any time of day or night. And the illness is reached faster. There's no question of that. We now get people coming in saying, you know, I started, I lost everything I had. It took me six months to do so. Um, and it, I, I started gambling pathologically from the beginning because I had a credit card. Uh, I was able to put my number in and that was that, you know. So, so everything has speeded up and we have really worked over the last decade in terms of using an evidence-based approach to change the way we work and work with technology now to try and help people use what we call stimulus control in order not to be able to spend their money immediately. If we rely on, you know, gamblers are by definition uh, the most impulsive of people with addiction. So if you've got a continuum, they are lying at the extreme end. So if you ask someone who's very impulsive to manage their own money, uh, when they get their paycheck and they are still in the throes of addiction and not spend it, it's very hard. But technology now has allowed us to get our gamblers to sign up with banks uh, that have the ability of not spending money on gambling. 
Uh, and that's been amazing. The last couple of years, we used something called Gamban, um, which is we worked with them to try and uh, refine the methodology they're using. And and our patients are trying to fight this uh, block at all times and are not successful. Uh, the banks with the Mon- Monzo Bank particularly uh, blocks the spending. And, uh, you know, if our patients want to reverse their decision, it takes 48 hours for it to occur. And this allows people who are in the heat of the moment wanting to spend their mortgage money to, in the cold light of day, go, thank goodness that block was in place. Yeah, that sounds tremendously useful. I'm still, I'm still slightly reeling. And the reason I, I'd actually noticed it was 2010 as well that the last prevalence survey was on because I was reading. And in fact, um, listeners will know that I'm one of the editors at the British Journal of General Practice. And in fact, you had an editorial, you're the co-author of an editorial that was published just yesterday at the time of recording in the BJGP. <laughs> Um, and I went to, actually, I went to pick it off the internet today and I was like, why well, can't I get the PDF? And then I, <laughs> I thought there was something broken in our system. And I realized it's because it's only been published for 24 hours online only. But, I wasn't, I'd forgotten that. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was just out. And, and so it's a really good, and the title of it is Should GPs Routinely Screen for Dam- Gambling Disorders? And yeah. of course, the initial section was, I noticed in the prevalence data that it was 2010. And it did occur to me that that is quite a, a lot time ago yeah especially in this fast moving internet and the really fascinating thing that i've done a lot of reading and blethering on about on the podcast about recently as well is about behavioral modification and the internet there's a slight irony and a paradox that technology is helping you to to manage impulsive behavior in compulsive in, in problem gambling and pathological gambling gambling because there's such a big issue and concern with the way that the you know social media and apps and phones and smartphones are manipulating our behavior and are very much behavioral modification devices. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you raised this. So there's a really big piece of work um, happening now. And in fact, we were in Westminster two days ago at a meeting just about that. There were about 150 people listening. We were on this panel discussion. We need to work with the ASA uh, who were there on the panel themselves uh, to try and make sure that people are not targeted uh, by adverts, by pop-ups, uh, either children or young people, because we know they are in themselves far more likely to, to, to try out gambling activities. They're four times more likely to suffer from problems from gambling. So we know that. But also all our patients and all the people at risk who suddenly relapse because out of the blue, here they are, they are being uh, targeted because of past activity and they're receiving um, mm. enticing opportunities, free bets, etc. Now, I will say that uh, three or four years ago, this was far worse. And I think the Gambling Commission has done one very good thing. They are now fining people large, and I mean large amounts of money, if these uh, uh, code of conducts are broken. One is about targeting people. Um, the other one is about using childlike images or child, uh, not childlike, but cartoon images to attract uh, young people towards activities that are actually adult activities and illegal for children. And there have been cases of, of companies being fined for that. So I feel having sat on the responsible gambling strategy board for six years in past years, um, you know, I feel that right now we are in a much better place, a much more regulated place. What we don't have, 
and I will say it again in public, we do not have an understanding of the extent of the problem because the things that should have happened, the longitudinal studies and the independent high-quality prevalence surveys have not taken place. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. And as we were saying, I think that um, that's going to be really key, isn't it? That's going to be an absolutely fascinating bit of research when it comes out in the next couple of years. Because if you suddenly see a chain, a leap in that, that's going to bake. That's going to put the that, the industry and the regulation under so much pressure to tackle it. Uh, yes. What 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 I will say is that I don't know what that prevalence uh, will be. You know, it's possible as it is in many European countries that it stays just under one percent. So I'm not in any way telling you that I expect it to triple or double. Yes, we're very, very busy. Yes, there are eight or 9,000 people in treatment at any one time. And, you know, we are hoping to get at least three times as many in treatment in the next few years. But um, I just feel that we need to work to an evidence-based uh, approach. And until we know what the population is out there and we make sure we target uh, the survey also at people who uh, are not your usual household owners. So we need to find the homeless. We did our first, we did the first UK homelessness and problem gambling research some years ago. We found the prevalence to be 10 times higher. Now that makes sense if you think about it, but the fact is that no one had done that before. And more importantly, that population had not been surveyed in the national service. So we really need to target the right people. There are high levels of comorbidity in gamblers in terms of mental health issues and other addictions. And this marginalizes them from society in general, but also from information seeking activities. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, my kind of past involvement with, with substance misuse has been with substance misuse in particular has been more your kind of opioid dependence, heroin yeah. dependence. And we know that an alcohol in particular as well. But my understanding is that problem gambling tends to cluster with those conditions in a way that you do tend to see like there are high levels of associations and that, that would certainly be part of the explanation for that that homeless research but if the, if the research is not done we can't one can't assume it yeah absolutely the other group that i find interesting and i'm sure colleagues listening will too is that unexpectedly we started some years ago seeing uh, a steady number of uh, people treated uh, with aripiprazole uh, either for mania or for schizophrenia, who um, were presenting with uh, de novo uh, gambling disorder induced by the medication. When we started bringing this to the to the attention of um, uh, you know, pharmaceutical industry, etc., we were slightly laughed off, laughed off the page. But 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 now it has been shown that indeed it is the case, and it's now in the BNF. Uh, aripiprazole uh, does cause behavioral addictions. And uh, we have a lot of our patients coming through who poor things, not only are they dealing with mental health issues, but now we've caused them to, not we personally, but, you know, mental health teams trying to do their best using a, you know, an antipsychotic, which is deemed to be so effective and with the least side effect profile is actually get, giving them hell because they've lost all their money. Um, and once you open that pathway, that neurobiological dysfunctional pathway, it's very hard to go back to normal, if you can call it that. Yeah. 
Gosh, I didn't know that. So aripiprazole, atypical antipsychotic, you, you don't go on at a drop of a pin. It's, you know, for people who've already got very serious, yeah. potentially enduring mental health problems. It's limited to aripiprazole. We haven't seen it with any other medication. And apart, obviously, let's leaving aside the Parkinson, the anti-Parkinson drugs, but uh, we haven't seen it with any other psychiatric medication. It's something to do with it being a partial agonist. Uh, but I have got no further than that. And I, 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 you know, I do not understand them. I've spoken to neurologists who also have no idea why it's happening. Um, but uh, certainly it is, it is important to, to, to realize. And then sometimes there's a very sad situation where someone is on aripiprazole and, you know, it's the only thing that's keeping them well. And the team tells us, let's try and do our best. Let's keep them on this because really we've tried everything else. And then we have this crazy situation where we are trying to manage one behavior in order to save them from other, uh, you know, worse behaviors. Yeah, gosh, that must be desperately challenging. The, uh, so let me let me just go back a little step then. So, in terms of pathological gambling, what are the what are the sort of typical constellation of symptoms and the way that people present? I suppose the best way to explain it is um, as a loss of control. Uh, so many people in this country gamble. Uh, I mean, literally over sixty percent of the population has gambled in the last year. Um, if you even if you remove the lottery, it's still very, very high. Uh, and so uh, for a minority of people, the gambling becomes more and more um, uh, compulsive. Uh, it, it takes up more of one's uh, thinking time. And uh, the, pre- the idea of ha- having a preoccupation with gambling is key. So you wake up in the morning, you're thinking about what you're going to gamble on. You then spend quite a lot of your time trying to work out where to get the funds from. Um, uh, our patients uh, use up their own funds. They then often uh, use their funds that have been designated for important things like uh, mortgage savings for the family. And then they start borrowing from friends. They start, you know, stealing from their partners um, and their family. And eventually, eventually, and very often, people steal from their employers, which is why so often we have people who become suicidal, because the consequence of the addiction has led them to cross that line into a criminal uh, sphere, which was not something they'd ever stepped into before. And everyone realizes that once they've crossed that threshold, it's very hard to bring it all back in line. Um, one of the other big things about gambling um, uh, disorder is the chasing of losses. When I talked about a dysregulated dopaminergic pathway, uh, there is something about the way that the people who are vulnerable towards gambling disorder think that makes them very excited at the idea of uh, uh, needing to chase the money they've lost instead of walking away from whether it's a table in a casino, whether it's a website on your computer. And they will stay and stay and stay, and they might stay, you know, 25, 30 hours um, until they've lost absolutely everything. Um, What we do know, interestingly, is that in um, children, The best predictor of problem gambling in adulthood is high levels of impulsivity at the age of seven. 
This is research from Karen Ursha's team in Cambridge. And I do really understand how, um, how this is because, because when you see the adults, you look back and, and, and absolutely there is this inability to postpone gratification. And there is that strong, um, uh, uh, let's say, um, deviation from the norm in terms of, uh, of, uh, of odds and understanding, uh, when it's time to walk, to walk away. Um, and, uh, just to finish, there are, uh, significant harms, just like in other addictions in relation to academic performance. We see a lot of people who've dropped out of university, uh, uh, work performance. We see a lot of people who've lost their jobs, not just the ones who've stolen from their jobs, but also people who are just not showing up for work or whose productivity has really dropped and have been sacked. Um, and then a lot of uh, relationship uh, breakdowns because of the um, uh, loss of trust between the, the couple. Yeah. So there's two or three things there. The first thing I wanted to highlight was that the suicide's a really important thing to mention because clearly that's a devastating potential impact on the individual, of course, but of families and everyone around them and very much higher levels of suicide associated with pathological gambling. So that's really important to emphasize. This is, so this is not a, you know, kind of, you know, people can, there's a, I think there's a slight stigma around it still. There's a lot of stigma around a lot of substance misuse disorders still. So, and there's an enormous stigma around gambling, I think, which is, you know, just stop. You've only got yourself to blame. Yes. I think the best thing that has happened, and it was, Kendall announced it yesterday, the big strategy, new strategy launch of the Gambling Commission yesterday afternoon. You know, gambling disorder is just one other addiction. And now that the NHS has put money, a lot of money into this, um, uh, na nationwide, uh, treatment, um, you know, uh, approach that they are going to announce, um, fully in the future. I, I, I think this is a time to really rejoice because the more treatment is available, locally for people who don't have to travel all the way to London to see us, um, uh, the more uh, it will be uh, known to, to, to primary care, uh, to, to GPs who will be able to refer easily. And at the moment, stigma is still very strong. There's also a lack of trust because gamblers, as we know, you know as I've explained, do actually uh, abuse positions of trust at times against their wish. But let me go back to the suicide for a second. There's a Swedish study that's come out in the, in the last few months that shows that in treatment-seeking populations, uh, the uh, completed rate of suicide is 15 times higher than in the general population, um, which is a shocking, shocking uh, uh, um, figures. Of course, they're Swedish, they're not English. We don't have the equivalent studies here, but there are other studies uh, you know, in other parts of the world that confirm high levels. And one of the other things we need to do here is, as I was saying earlier, to invest in independent research that is uh, looking at issues like suicide, because it could be, as uh, someone was saying yesterday, that a significant proportion of, uh, of the country's suicides might be linked to, you know, uh, people ending their lives because either of the crimes they've committed or the, um, all the losses they've incurred that make them feel they, they will never uh, be able to regain their old lives. I mean, when we were, we used to be based in Soho for many years and the number of uh, waiters from Chinatown who used to come and they had, 
gambled away their salaries, had borrowed from their uh, employers, and now would be working for the rest of their days without ever repaying their debts. Yeah, so 15 times, that is enormous. Um, mm. I, it was um, a few months ago, I interviewed uh, Rory O'Connor from the Suicide Behaviour Research Lab up in Glasgow. Yes. And I was, I, and I suppose, uh, one of the, why would it be so high? I, I guess you've, you started describing it there. Perhaps it's just the hopelessness more than anything else. It's very hard to, for those people to envisage a future when you're financially, morally, kind of neurobiologically, they just feel there's no, they, they do feel that sense of ab- abject, you know, despair. One of the reasons why I, I find this illness so interesting is that there's a constellation of factors or, 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 or interplaying to, in terms of shaping someone's behavior. So you've got, you know, some of the highest levels of impulsivity in the population. You've got a 50% heritability factor here. Um, so you, you've got people who've inherited addiction from their relatives. Uh, you then have people who therefore have grown up in an environment that often won't be optimal because of the inherited addiction that is already existing in the family. You've got people who are growing up with uh, childhood trauma, emotional, physical, sexual abuse, uh, lack of proper parenting. There are so many factors coming into play that the money, yes, is vital in terms of making people feel they can't recoup all that they've lost. But it's only one factor in terms of people feeling that they are completely out of step with where they should be. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Do you, is your overall approach to this, Henrietta, do you think it's, I was the editor-in-chief of the Harm Reduction Journal a few years ago, but I was more there because of the substance misuse side. But since then, they've, had a, they've got a gambling, problem gambling, pathological gambling section as well now. Um, do you think this is all about really a harm reduction approach more than anything? That actually, as you say, we, you know, with almost everybody in the population, or the majority, I should say, 60, 70%, what have you, have done what can be defined as some kind of gambling activity in some way. It's really about trying to help those at the extremes of that spectrum in particular. I mean, would you advocate much stronger policies that there shouldn't be any kind of gambling or exposure? Um, I love this question. Okay, so um, what's changed this year, and it's really important, is that the Gambling Commission itself has taken on the public health approach towards this. It's no longer a matter for the individual and the individual's weaknesses uh, to uh, and their resilience to improve. It is now finally, and we've been campaigning for this for a long time, something that is a responsibility, a responsibility of this country and the and, and this country's health uh, ministers to to properly ensure that people are protected from what can be deemed to be gambling harm. Now, um, having said that, as we all know, um, preventing people from gambling altogether is is, is highly likely to, uh, to to cause other problems. Um, and, and illegal gambling sites and people doing it offshore, which of course is already happening, unfortunately. You know, we can only regulate what is UK based. It's much harder to regulate things that are happening abroad, but that people are gambling on from the UK. So uh, I do believe that having a public health approach is correct. That's right. Uh, and I also must emphasize that the population, uh, that is experiencing these severe problems is nevertheless at present uh, uh, under uh, under the 1%. 
I, I am very concerned about the 2 million people at risk. And as I said, I'm very concerned about the fact I don't have any current data to talk to you about because obviously, uh, you know, uh, what I'm telling you is 10 years old out of date. The Gambling Commission has done smaller studies, but you know, it's very hard to use those because they're not actually of the size and quality of what we need. So I, I, I think that we know that uh, there are vulnerable people um, who are at risk of uh, uh, finding the advertising um, uh, appealing and uh, potentially shaping uh, their behaviour because of the ads. Uh, young people, all young people would be included in this. And then many other people who have vulnerabilities due to their uh, personal history, their genetic history, etc. So if it was up to me, I would ban all gambling adverts. But of course I would. I spend my life with people who've been uh, harmed by gambling. I think um, there will be big changes in this area. Some countries have already banned uh, uh, any gambling uh, during any part of the day, including during sports. Some countries have uh, banned uh, in-play betting, which I think is quite harmful and it's been a new development for us to fight against. So I think we'll see some big changes in the UK as well. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I thought maybe you were heading that way of saying you, if you don't, you, you would ban the adverts for obvious reasons, as you described. I mean, I think I'm there as well. And I'm, I certainly think that there has to be a pushback against the saturation coverage at the moment. I mean, I yeah. enjoy watching football and it is, you know, they advertise, they're not advertising out the goodness of their hearts. There's, there's because it returns a profit for them. Yeah. And the, yeah. in, the in play, advertising recently is if, if you're in the slightest bit inclined mm. it strikes me as extremely difficult to resist with you in terms of that it just plays into that impulsivity characteristic absolutely and you know then we get on to the normalization of gambling as mm. one other activity a recreational activity and i think this certainly with the alcohol research um, has shown to be very dangerous in terms of normalizing behavior um, I think that the sponsoring of football shirts is, is a disaster and, um, and that should be stopped across the whole country. Now, um, people say to me, I'm too extreme. You know, the, the, the money's being given to things that are good. But, you know, we've got one of the most obese young people, nation of young, obese young people. Um, sport needs to happen, needs to happen frequently. What we can't do is to get people to appreciate sport, play sport and do it wearing gambling industry shirts. So I think there is a big piece of work to be done there across across the board. Yeah, absolutely. The um, I'm you know I'm a massive fan of promoting physical activity, but I am I, I'm almost entirely unconvinced that um, elite watching elite sport does much to encourage people to get active. I've seen very little evidence for that, and you know the previous experiences with the Olympics or other things. I just think they're almost like a world apart from your normal person who's trying to get active and just needs to do you know maybe walk for half an hour a day. It's a completely different. It, and the more elite they've got over the years, the bigger that gap has become. And gamble, you know, and then the side effect of watching that is, as well as some fake um, suggestion that it will get people active, it also there's also this harm associated yeah. with the, with the advertising. Yes, I fully agree with you. Yeah. Um, 
Excellent. So one thing I should ask is if you, there was, I saw one bit of interesting statistic was that actually though about 1%, you know, a little bit under 1% perhaps of pathological gambling. Actually, if you ask the families, they often report a bit higher. So people around people who are gambling are often more, I think I said 7% of people have reported that maybe they thought someone in their family had a problem. Now, a lot of those wouldn't necessarily meet the criteria for severe pathological gambling or whatever that's at. But if you are one of those people, that's, a, that, that's a really quite a significant number then, 7% of people who are concerned about other people gambling, and they've got to try to work out whether that's something that's okay or whether it's a problem. If you do think you've got somebody in your family or a friend or a mate or what have you that's got a gambling problem, um, what kind of advice would you give somebody to try to get them into services, try to get an idea about whether they're um, it's leading them to further problems and where to steer them? Um, yes, thank you for asking that question. The, the most important thing to tell you is that the majority of our patients uh, do not share this problem with anybody and are so highly secretive that they are uh, able to um, live their lives for many years uh, without anyone realising until things crash around them. And I mean, until their marital home is taken away. Um, I have a, a famous case of someone I sometimes give talks in, in the company of, or I've interviewed in public, who had 16 um, race dogs, uh, greyhounds, <laughs> and he was keeping those. And he was married, you know, and his wife didn't realise. She sometimes thought he was coming home smelling a bit funny. Uh, but, you know, things can... <laughs> uh, uh, that's just to give you an example of how to what extent people can get to. So um, uh, I, I think that uh, if there are, so so the, the most important thing we do is that we involve families, carers, um, children, parents. We, we, we have free treatment here at the NHS clinic, at the National Problem Gambling Clinic, for everyone who has suffered adverse effects from someone gambling. And the reason for this is that there is research to show that people will come into treatment more easily if their relatives are already getting help, even if in the initial phases, they will not acknowledge it. The second point to make is that we've published research and there is international research on domestic violence. There are very high rates, unfortunately, of domestic violence in problem gambling because historically the way you would control the spending would be to get the wife and it's normally men who are experiencing this although there are plenty of women who have the illness but get the spouse or the mother or the father to hold the money so when you're in the middle of a craving and urge you will do everything you can to get that money including threaten or beat up your relatives um, so uh, the most important thing to say is if you're concerned there are uh, websites to turn to. Uh, there is the NHS Choices is the best one to look at because that lists all the uh, available treatment places, contact numbers. All you need to do is to go on NHS Choices and put in gambling. Yeah, and there's lots of good resources there. I think um, certainly you mentioned this in the editorial that was published yesterday. Actually, it's a mistake to assume that a healthcare professional is going to pick up on it as well. And as healthcare professionals, we have to realize that there are certain topics that we are not very good at discussing with patients. Though, you know, we don't like to be told we're doing our job badly, but, uh, you know, whether it's sexual health or whether it's alcohol and whether it's gambling, actually, patients aren't always going to disclose things to us. And we're not always good at specifically asking as well. I, I, absolutely. Um, the majority of people who come here, uh, have never had the uh, wish to talk about their gambling 
to their family doctors. Um, in part, it's to protect the um, uh, their family from the stigma, which they realize would then um, it maybe impact on the community. Uh, you know, we are talking about you know across the country, not just in London, where things are more impersonal. And um, secondly, I think there's a, a, a high level of shame in our patients uh, in relation to their illness, very different, very different from alcohol. I worked in alcohol for many years and people, although they weren't happy about it, they would actually request help from their doctors when they needed it. Um, so, so there is lack of disclosure. Um, however, the training is vital and, and certainly for the last, you know, 15 years, one of my main drives has been to teach at every possible uh, conference where, you know, GPs, psychiatrists, I've now trained lots of people up who do the same. We've met, you know, we have really put it on the map. And so now at national level has the, um, the network of treatment providers who are all trying to teach as much as possible in order for uh, anyone who wants to understand and know about the illness. And in fact, we've just been asked to do the CPD module for the RC Psych, uh, which then is accessible to everybody. Fabulous. Well, I have to say, I think you're doing a wonderful job. And even today, you've taught me a tremendous amount. Um, and I'm sure anybody listening is going to take a tremendous amount for, from it as well. Where can we find out a little bit more about you and the work that you do? Where, where's your sort of online home? Um, well, in terms of publications, and uh, it might, might be helpful. I, I have a website, henriettabodenjones.com, all one word. And, and, and the publications is every, it's, it's slightly out of date. It's about six months out of date. Um, but everything we publish uh, is there um, on a uh, on a sort of more um, international basis. There are some really great people, and I'll give you a couple of names. People like Mark Potenza, M-A-R-C, Mark Potenza at Yale University and John Grant in Chicago, they have absolutely and far more than anything we have done in the UK shaped the understanding and the work that is done um, uh, now in relation to problem gambling. One other person who unfortunately had died recently is Nancy Petrie. M many people will know her for her contingency management work in addictions. But those three names would give people a real understanding. On my website, there are also the names of the books we've published. We've got three or four books, and that also might be helpful. There's one particular one called A Clinician's Guide to Working with Problem Gamblers that is uh, sort of essential, really. Yeah, absolutely. There are some wonderful resources there. So I'll make sure I get links up to those and these names and other bits and pieces down as well. Henrietta, thank you so much for taking the time to speak today. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. Uh, you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating. That would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blocology.io. Thanks again. Bye.